All right, now 41, Genesis 41, 37 to 57. Genesis 41, 37. We read here of Joseph's elevation or exaltation. He is elevated to the office of governor or ruler of Egypt. 37. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the, the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. In 37, we read that Pharaoh likes what Joseph says. He has come to his senses and understands that he has to take this interpretation seriously for the survival of his own kingdom, his own nation, and everyone who dwells in the country, in his nation. In 38, he tells us why he made this decision. He's not wrong. He's right. In 38, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? The NASB says divine spirit. 
That is an unfortunate rendering because it is literally Spirit of God. This same phrase, Spirit of God, occurs in several places throughout the Old Testament. In Moses, it appears several times. The first time is Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That's the same phrase as it is here in verse 38. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, same phrase, such as Numbers 24-2. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said. That's Numbers 24, verse 2. When the Spirit of God came upon Balaam, and he prophesied. It's the word, the Spirit of God. Same phrase. The same two nouns in conjunction with each other. Ruach Elohim. That's the phrase, Spirit of God. That's the way it should be here. I highly doubt that Joseph did not preach and explain things wherever he went. He certainly would have explained things, explained the gospel, explained what he believed to them. So Pharaoh believes that the Spirit of God is in Joseph. And he confirms it by saying in verse 39, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, and God has informed you, then no one is discerning and wise as you. Those words were in the mind of Pharaoh because of verse 33. Joseph first used those words and put the idea in Pharaoh's mind. Pharaoh confirms it. He knows exactly. So then in verses 40 to 45, we have Pharaoh preparing Joseph. He prepares him. He elevates him. He says in verse 40, You shall be over my house, over my household, over the palace. According to your command, all my people shall do homage. Everyone will respect you, give you due respect. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. That's in verse 40 and in verse 44. Moreover, 44 says, Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Everyone will submit to Joseph. This happened also in the days of Mordecai. Remember in the book of Esther? Mordecai was also second in the whole nation, second to the king, the king of the Persians. In Esther 8, 1 to 2, and Esther 10, 1 to 3. Esther 8, 1 to 2, and Esther 10, 1 to 3. Mordecai also was elevated to being the ruler of the empire, the Persian empire, second in command under the king. Likewise here, God reversed Joseph's circumstances right here, just as he did in Mordecai's case. He reversed Mordecai's circumstances. Mordecai was on the brink of death, of execution, on the gallows, right? He was on the brink of execution, and that was reversed, and his enemy was executed, and all the enemies of the Jews were put to death. But Mordecai and the Jews, Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews were spared. Well, same here. 
Verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. He has control over all the land of Egypt by the appointment of Pharaoh. And then it says in verse 45, And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. He went to scan, he went to observe, he went to meet, he went to see all the land of Egypt to see what he had to do to prepare for the next seven years and then the seven years following, the next 14 years. He went to prepare by checking all the land. This also shows that he didn't live a cloistered life in the palace. He didn't do, do it that way. He went among the people to see what the conditions actually were so that he might help the people in the right way. Uh, 42, Pharaoh took off his signet ring, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace around his neck. The signet ring, the source of authority, the stamp of approval on decrees and documents, Joseph had that. He had the fine garments and jewelry of being a man of power and wealth. Suddenly, he had that. Yeah. suddenly yeah. this happened. He was nothing and became something, just like that, because of God. Of course, this passage cannot be used one way or the other. Some might use this passage to say Joseph is doing wrong and sinning by having extravagance. And others might say, he, since he has extravagance, we should have extravagance. But really, it's speaking of modesty. There is a place for fine clothing, necklaces, and rings. But we shouldn't use it in a gaudy way. We shouldn't be boasting and displaying and trying to puff ourselves up in the presence of other people. That's not the reason for fine clothes and jewelry. Um, And he did not sin in doing so. If he sinned in doing so, why is he commended throughout these chapters? He's not sinning in doing so. And it's not something just for the Old Testament. Some people will say that too. This has to do with the moral law, the condition of the heart, and the way one lives day by day. This is not dealing with animal sacrifices and festivals. It's dealing with the moral law. So he's not coveting, you shall not covet, and he's not stealing, and he's not worshiping idols when he's doing so. Therefore, There is a proper place for things like this. Further, respect, verse 43. 43, everyone is supposed to bow the knee. This is not in worship, but it is in respect. Abraham, in Genesis 23, bowed before the authorities in the land of Canaan, Genesis 23. Here, others are told that they should bow before Joseph. Bowing in the, to another man is not automatically a sign of idolatry. Right. It depends on the reason for bowing. The reason, and if the reason is to show respect, then that's okay to bow. 45. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. We don't know exactly definitively what this means. 
Um, you may have a note that says, God speaks, he lives. Perhaps that's the case. It is most likely an Egyptian name, not a Hebrew name. Some try to make it a Hebrew name, but it's likely an Egyptian name, not Hebrew name. This should not surprise us either because often people have two names. Whether they are rulers or common people, they often have two names. And this is the case here with Joseph. Of course, perhaps because of the length of the name and that because it's only mentioned once, it's not repeated throughout the Bible. And we don't know him as this. We know him as Joseph. By the way, even the name Moses. Moses is not a Hebrew name. It's an Egyptian name. But that name has stuck. Perhaps also because nothing else was given to him and it's a short enough name to stick with it. Then the daughter, um, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Um, whether she was a believer or not, we don't know. Or whether she converted at this time for Joseph to marry her, we don't know. But likely that's what happened. Likely Joseph would not have just married an idolatrous and immoral woman. He probably would not have done that. I think it's implied that she considered what, what truth claims he presented to her or through, someone, through an agent and then explained to her and she says, yes, I believe, I agree, I think he's right. And so she believed the gospel. Also, he's called, the, the man, her father, is called priest. Some have wondered whether this word priest should be rendered priest in the religious sense or prince in the political sense. The original Hebrew word could mean a leader, a political leader. It's most often, however, used of a religious leader and translated priest. Likely, though, this was a political leader and a better rendering would be um, a prince or a ruler. The reason this is an issue comes up in 2 Samuel 8.18. 2 Samuel 8.18 because in the original language it says David's sons were priests. If you look at your marginal note it may say literally priests. When actually, it shouldn't say literally priests, it should say or priests. The NASB renders 2 Samuel 8.18 as chief ministers. Chief ministers or rulers, uh, governors, something like that. And in fact, the Greek translation of 2 Samuel 8.18 does say princes. They render it in Greek as princes. They were Ministers, political ministers, not religious ministers, according to the Greek translation of 2 Samuel 8, 18. And this has to be the case because David's sons could not be Levitical religious priests because David was from the tribe of Judah and only the Levites and the family of Aaron could conduct anything in relation to the tabernacle and temple but not David's sons. They could not. So they could not have been religious 
leaders, they were political leaders. Likely that's the same in Genesis 41, 45. Um, Also, On is the Hebrew word for this city. Outside of the Bible, the more popular name is Heliopolis, which is the city of the sun. They worship the sun god. He was popular in this city in the northern part of Egypt called Lower Egypt, not far from the land of Goshen. So Heliopolis is the more popular name of this city in the northern part known as Lower Egypt. 46. 46 to 49. Joseph was 30 years old. As we said from 37 verse 2 and now here 41, 46, we have Joseph's life from age 17 to age 30. And by the time, by the time that his family comes and he reveals himself to them, we notice that nine years have passed. Look at chapter 45, 45, 6, 45, 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. That's in chapter 45, when he reveals himself to his family. So, and describes what has happened to him. That means that he was age 39 at that point. Age 39. And at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, it tells us that he was 110 years old when he died. 50, verse 22. 50, 22. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. 110 years. And also verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. How long was his affliction? 13 years. Or even his low, lowly life. You could say 17 years of a lowly life as a nomad in the land of Canaan because they they weren't kings. They didn't own acres and acres of land, correct? They didn't have a military. They were not like that. And so he led a lowly life for 17 years, a life of severe affliction for 13 years, but then a life of comfort and elevation for the next 80 years until he died. That's how he lived, which is a picture of our own life, our own life and eternal life. Verse 46. 46 repeats that he went through all the land of Egypt and 47 to 49. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundance, uh, abundantly, so he gathered all the food these seven years, placed them in storage cities. And there was so much abundance, 49 says, thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea. Who can count the sand of the sea? Until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. 
That's how much God had blessed them and prepared them. He knew that he should not use the period of abundance for indulgence. He did not use abundance for indulgence. He used abundance for preparation. Like we mentioned in the previous hour, that's what the ants do. Ants don't have abundance in the summer for indulgence. They have abundance in summer to prepare for winter. We should do the same. 50 to 52, two sons are born. Uh, Before the year of famine, so within the seven years, these two sons are born. It specifies who exactly his wife was, again in 50. And then the firstborn is named Manasseh. Manasseh means making to forget. He explains why he named him making to forget. He said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Joseph does not mean that it's completely wiped out of his memory. Or I haven't thought about it in years. What he really means is the pain of it does not torment me as it used to torment me. It doesn't poke me as it used to poke me and hurt me. Because God has so blessed me now that I understand. I understand that God has been working to bring me to this point. So the afflictions don't hamper me and bother me like they used to do. Because now I have a period of enjoyment, a period of abundance. I have a wife and I have a son now in a land where I am the governor of the whole country. That's what he means in 51. In 52, his second born, Ephraim, means fruitfulness. And God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The land of his affliction becomes the land of his fruitfulness. Now with the second son. Therefore, Ephraim is the name. 53 to 57. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. It happened in 53 to 54, the key phrase, just as Joseph had said, which confirms that he had the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of God in him, just as he had said. Now, everybody knows they have a further confirmation that he's a true prophet of God, just as he said. It says here, In 54, all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. 55, all the land of Egypt. And 56, when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth. 57, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. 
This is an example of us having to read very carefully and contextually. Carefully and contextually. What does the Bible mean when it says all the lands and all the earth? Does it mean the whole globe? Yes or no? Well, 42 verse 5. 42.5 says, Genesis 42.5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Land of Canaan also. Canaan and Egypt are adjacent to each other. Canaan is northeast of Egypt. Right? And so, here it's saying it was also in the land of Canaan. It's in Canaan and it's in Egypt. 47, chapter 47, 13 to 15. 47, 13 to 15. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Which lands? Egypt and Canaan. These are the two main names. But even in the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan was broken up into several parts. Because all of the land of Canaan was not owned or was not ruled by just one king or one tribe or one nation. It wasn't like that. It was a group of nations. So in that way, using the expression all the earth in a generic way, speaking of a widespread famine, which is wide enough, northern Africa, Egypt, and the land of Canaan, that is wide enough. And that is usually the breadbasket. The, the breadbasket of the world, or that part of the world, be, became an empty bucket for seven years. That's what the phrase means. It was widespread and spread from Egypt to Canaan. This is confirmed in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 11. Acts chapter 7, verse 11. Stephen says this. Acts seven eleven. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. There he says, there was a famine over all Egypt and Canaan. He did not mean, Moses did not mean in Genesis 41 that it was a global famine. Certainly other nations who would buy and, and sell and trade as merchants with Egypt and Canaan, they would have suffered. But it does not necessarily mean that in every place all around the world that there was no rain for seven years. That's not what it's saying. Furthermore, Joseph is the point man. Verse 55. Genesis 41, 55. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians... Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. 
Whatever he says, you shall do. They cried out to him, to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. This will introduce us to the next chapters so that whenever people do come, they go to Joseph. And this will explain why his brothers have to end up facing Joseph face to face. And when they do meet him face to face, this is God's way of arranging for these interviews that Joseph's brothers will have with Joseph. God is setting up the brothers to be in the position of want and Joseph in abundance. Joseph in authority and they practically as slaves to Joseph. So we're seeing an intimation of what Joseph dreamed in chapter 37, that he was going to rule over his father, mother, and his brothers. It's about to happen. Again, by the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.